So when I was last here, I led our introduction into the Gospel of John, in particular, chapter number 7. And quite interesting is that unlike when I first did the first 26 verses, um, I did not read them, especially given the capacity and the amount of information uh, that was going to be displayed as I move forward in my sermon. But unlike today, as we now reach the end of chapter 7, we are actually going to read the chapter in its entirety. I feel best that it's proper that we do it this way so that our thought and approach is one complete process. And as of which, when I continue through the sermon today, as I get as we close the end, there should be newfound hope and meaning as to why the dynamics of the last day of this particular ceremony was apparent and that John's intention to make it apparent is not only necessary for the church of that day, but also today as well. So with that being said, turn your Bibles to John chapter 7. And we will read all 53 verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do do these things, show yourself to the world. By verse 5, John notes, For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. And yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews were then astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered him and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. By verse 19, the Messiah continues, 
Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answers, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Jesus responds back to them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath day, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. Rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whatever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cries out in the temple teaching, saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come on myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has? Will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, fall a little while longer I'm with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Is he not intending to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks, and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement, he said, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. John then makes note here by verse number 37 that now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit. Those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scriptures said the Christ comes from the descendant of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So the division in the their vision occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him. But no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not break him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, Have you not, have you not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees that believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, by parentheses, he who came to him before, being one of them, 
said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Then they answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arise out of Galilee. And the chapter closes, Everyone went to his home. Shall we now look to the Lord our God in prayer? Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day, Lord, and we are mindful of our ability to be here, Lord. You have made us able-bodied and proper in care and with able mind to sit here and give worship to your Son. And after receive the means of grace of which we've made our prayer and supplications known to you after hearing the word being read, we have now come to this portion where the word is now being preached and taught to your people. So therefore, Lord, be with thy servant as he teach and feeds your sheep. And be with them to have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive the word. Showing here, as we've now received in this chapter, the Lord shows the ever-loving kindness he has for his people. Then, here, and in the future, to show that when you have honored the Son, we have honored you. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. And now, in case you were wondering, I did not start my timer. So, I will use this remaining portion that I have, actually, to go ahead and continue to exclaim. And I wanted, like I said, to read the whole portion. Because as great as it is that we've taken the sermon, or past two sermons, to convey the different parts and break it into pieces... I felt it was even better to show, especially with the way that the chapter begins as compared to the way the chapter actually ends. Now, where we're going to make this approach here, granted, uh, unfortunately, to those in the telecast, they were not able to receive the sermon in regards to where we discussed uh, verses 27 up to verses 36. Reading the chapter, I felt in the beginning, would then allow just for that nice segue as we're going to now get to verse 37 to 53 as we bring this chapter to a close. And why bringing the dynamics of the end day up to your attention is because with the way that John conveys what transpired in the prior day or in the two days engulfing the ceremony in which the Messiah teaches, we should take to some careful consideration in regards to the dynamics of the, the discussion as to which displayed amongst the Jews. The only reason why I say this is because unlike on the first day, of which he appears in secret. Got to remember here. He comes in secret. And takes to a portion of the temple. To teach. And after individuals were pondering. And trying to figure out. Who is he? Where is he from? The dynamics of what is the next day. They're already understanding what happened yesterday. In fact, the reason why, again, I want to read the whole chapter 
was because I want you to notice the dynamics and the way of the tonality that the Messiah uses in regards to how he's conveyed his doctrine. When he began, we note that he taught and the people were amazed because he spoke and articulated his position well. And upon giving certain dynamics and debate, he cries out. Well, what's interesting is uh, that transpired in the previous day to which now the plan was rumbling to seize him. And yet by verse 30, we know his hour had not yet come. He does the same thing in crying out on the last day. We don't hear about him coming in secret, unlike the previous day. These dynamics are pretty important, especially in the way we're going to approach this. So therefore, in John, making the attention, as I bring your attention now to verse 37, Showing that in this last day was a great day. It was to show the amount of the crowd that had now amassed. Almost as if this is the grand stage of them all. And he has everyone's attention. And what makes it interesting about it. The evangelist has to make note he cries out. In fact, to make this cry out. He indicates, especially indicates, something that, unlike the previous day, is a new doctrine. Or is it? In fact, what's interesting, especially in crying out, in the previous day, like I stated, it gave notice that his life was in danger. Why would our Lord then, having knowing that his life was in danger, come back to the same ceremony and continue to teach? I mean, was not the attentions of the chief scribes and the elders and the priests after hearing the word now being read to kill him, to seize him? In fact, why didn't they... Or why weren't they successful approximately 8 to 12 months prior when he healed the lame man? Bring your attention to John 5, John 5, 15 through 18. The man went away and informed the Jews that it was Jews who made him well. And by verse 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So he answered back to them. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. By note by what John now writes in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. All that transpired on the previous day. And by chapter 5, Given that was a ceremony of which he heals the lame man amongst, amongst a huge crowd, they sought to kill him there. But they weren't successful then. They weren't successful the previous day. 
maybe they might be successful on the last day. Well, as we will continue now going back to chapter number seven, it is interesting to see how in their intent to take the life of the Messiah, it is interesting that some, knowing the plot, questioned, who's seeking to kill you? Granted, you've done nothing wrong, have you? We have no merit to kill you. But in answering back, knowing full and well that the chief scribes, the priests, and the Pharisees were listening in, he knows to them what he did in that previous, uh, previous feast of which he healed the lame man and he brings out the hypocrisy. So then, by verse 25 to 26, the people are now complexed. And nevertheless, note by how complex they are, because again, the chief priests and the scribes and the good portion of Sanhedrin was there. Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And yet, look, he's speaking publicly. And they're saying nothing to him? The rulers don't know that this is the Christ now, do they? You see, what has allowed us to do in this last day is completely contrast the difference between the way the Messiah approached the previous day as approaching it till now. And it's quite telling. Because upon him crying out in verse 28, of which he takes to the same proposition he did in chapter 5, you both know me and where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. He does not lose the dynamics of the proposition he displayed in chapter 5. He is showing here he is making himself equal with the Father. But then by verse number 37, on the last day of the feast, there's a different dynamic here then. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So I broached this question to you rhetorically, though I know you cannot answer me here. But is there a contradiction for surely the previous quest, the previous uh, uh, exclamation and the previous day provide indignation and malice for them to seek his life. But on the last day here today, they're not doing so. In fact, by verse 40, some of them have stated after hearing this, truly, then this is a prophet. Does this not sound familiar? And for those who with good intentions, massing the dose of this thought, they could have even said, you see, look, he's not crazy. You see, he does not lead the people astray. You see, he's saying 
what we've always known. Look, he's not making himself equal with the Father. In fact, he quotes Isaiah 55 verse 1. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And ye that have no silver, come, buy and eat. Come, I say, buy wine and milk without silver and without money. In fact, the Messiah does very well to show the interpretation to this. By verse 38 in John 7, the ones who believe in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Well, there's no fascination then. By verse 41, some people even go as further as to say this is the Christ. If I bring your recollection back to John chapter 6, we saw the crowd, 5,000 heads of households, dwindle down to 12 by the end of the chapter. And in chapter 7, the fever seemed to have kind of flicked. So now they're all sudden angry with him. And all of a sudden now it looks like, hey, he's a good guy. He's not crazy. But all in all, as this dynamic looks to see from a bird's eye view, that maybe they really were truly Christians. And it just was the time and place and the ideal that had to be displayed in order to show that. Note what the evangelist said by verse 39. But this he said in reference to the spirit when after quoting Isaiah in verse 38, whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What's all of a sudden transpired is that the Messiah in the previous day showed, as he has been consistent throughout the parts of the scriptures in the Gospel of John up to that previous day, he and the Father is one. But now, he is starting to embark on the next portion of his message, of which he must now do a new work or a work so that the mystery and the eternal decree from which transpired before the beginning of time must come to pass. The Father draws you, the Son redeems, and the Spirit seals. And in the dynamic, the dynamic of it is quite profounding because in him, unlike the previous day in which making himself known with the father today or on this day of which he's given in the last day of the great feast, he is showing the next dynamic of which he must go in order to bring the helper. He thought about the time and the place. But then also, but then also what's interesting, he is doing the will of the Father by bringing the doctrine to those who were to believe in him. 
Does this mean that from the prior day, there could have been a different set of people who could have attended? Could have. But in the dynamics of the Jews and how they answered, it is not alike to yesterday. We have people here who probably exclaimed and had their eyes opened. Now, of those people, and this is why it makes it even interesting in a compelling thought process to carefully look at this last day. They exclaim, this is truly the prophet. Was this not said before in John 6 verse 14? I read to you, therefore, when the people saw the signs which had been before him, they said, this truly is the prophet who comes into the world. I tell you here, those two people are alike. And the reason why is the notation of which, even in our day, you may come and sit in the pews and listen to a man speak, but unless you're very familiar with some of the adages of which will come with the different dynamics of the faith, if he articulates himself or he seems to be somewhat contrite and sincere, you're thinking, Peter, you did a good sermon today. I really felt that. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. Because remember the day before, he makes himself to be known with God, to be co-equal with the Father, and they have nothing but rash and indignation against him. And all of a sudden today, they said, he says, come to me for life. And all of a sudden, they're like, yeah, we like this. This is a better message. The indignation has no, has no stop. They're no different than the ones from yesterday. You sound great. You did great. Yeah, I like this message. Yeah. Well, then, how about the second group? This is the Christ. Those individuals, those individuals are a different breed because they properly gave the right answer. They saw after hearing the word being preached and heard clearly, this is the chosen one. This is the anointed one. This is the one who was to come. The evangelist here is making it compelling. Especially when you're hearing these first two dynamics. In order to come to be complete in your faith, you must accept Christ. Because the warnings are here. When you reject Christ, you are not drawn by the Father. So much so the Messiah says, you do not know him. And if you do not know him, and you are not drawn by him, the son in his work and redemption does not apply to you. 
Note by John 5, 19 through 21. That in terms of coming together and joining his oneness with the Father, he shows the submission. He shows the love to do his will. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son do also in the same way. For the Father loves the Son and in his love shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him even greater works than these. So that what? You will be amazed. Not have your pride and indignation hot. For just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. And note the inspiration here of which there's continuity between John 5 and John 7. I bring to you as the Lord spoke to them in regards to coming to me. Note by John 5, 24, a further exclamation. Truly, truly, I say to you, the ones who hear my words and believe him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. This is all one continuing thought process. Though the dynamics of the two days might have shifted, it's still one continual thought process. But what's amazing, what is amazing is that on the previous day, to show you that you really weren't one of his, as the Messiah exclaimed the oneness with the Father, these people weren't ours to begin with. But on the next day, especially to those who exclaim, this is the Christ, they know and they hear and they believe. And now, by that portion of which he stated, in terms of being that living, flowing set of water, it's punctuated, and it could even be stated to be stated in layman terms how he's going to convey it here. I use John 5.32 to explain. This, there is another, though, who testifies of me. And I know that testimony which he which he gives about me is true. And now note the continu continuity here in John 7. He's now going to that dynamic of that testimony that's going to be made so that we know, we know after the Messiah has come that what we are reading and assenting to is true. You know, it's interesting because in John 
the beginning portions of John is in particular in verses 17. I brought to you the intention that is required in regards to being able to discern what is being what is spiritual and what is earthly. I mean, our Lord could not have better said it himself. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teachings, whether it is of God or whether I'm speaking of myself. How, how much more evident is it not here on the next day that we have individuals taking to even exclaim, this is the Christ? It's just more than he's a good man. It's just more than he's truly a prophet. They have properly discerned this is the Christ. And you know what's interesting? For those who's coming with a humanist intent, especially if they're trying to read this last portion of the verse for face value, they will note, well, pastor, the, the spirit was not given to these people and Jesus was not yet glorified. How then can they make this exclamation that this is the Christ? And to them, I said, O contraire, more frère. Did not the Messiah question a certain Pharisee who in his own title and his exclamation believed in the resurrection uncompared to the Sadducees who did not of the Sanhedrin? Unto which the Pharisee exclaimed back to him and speaking of how the spirit was to come and move. How can these things be? Oh, by our Messiah's own response. You are the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things. What have you then been reading? I mean, he probably could have just told them if John felt it was necessary in the spirit, but he did not. Well, we've had the Babylonian Talmud. History is part in this context now, isn't it? Did you lose the transcription and the understanding from all the prior prophets in regards to the speaking of the spirit and how it was to come? Or maybe the covenants that were made with Abraham, Noah, uh, Moses, just to name a few. Maybe that was just done in jest. There was no binding to them. The important part, part in regards to chapter 7 is being able to disseminate between the earthly things and what is in heaven. And it's beautiful and amazing because what transpires with the dynamics of the Messiah speaking on the two days in comparison shows that. You get those who don't believe on the previous day and the few, the few, not all, but the few who does believe in the next day. I mean, look. We have John 6.35 in, in the prior chapter in which he notes. He states, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. So what is the earthly response from the Jews? Grumbling and mumbling. Because he said, I'm the bread of, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. 
How about John 6.51? Again, I am the bread of living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Oh, now he's talking about cannibalism. But then the indignation just continues to rise with the Jews now. For in their earthly response, they began now to argue. Oh, now you're just crazy. How can this man now give us his flesh to eat? But by chapter number seven, he comes and speaks and exclaims. I said again, he cries out. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. An earthly response could have been, I don't see any wells of water near you. And we, we have a refreshment table right over here. But their exclamation, especially of the few, not the ones who consider him to be a prophet, but especially of the few, they called him the Christ. Paul stated in Romans 2, 28 to 29, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is a circumcision that is one outwardly in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And a circumcision, that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, is what makes a true Jew. As I want to close this idea and thought process, especially because this, this is a very important because taking into the consideration of earthly versus heavenly things, I cannot stress enough how if you're not careful and you listen to the wrong people, especially from a humanist intent, their critics and their criticism seems to come with weight. But if you are able and you've been moved by the Spirit and discerned and take to men that show evidence of that, you will see why it was proper that John would make this quote, especially because he noted that Jesus was not yet glorified. So in making this evident of the Spirit not being given because Jesus was not yet glorified, let's take to the dynamics and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I think... I think Louis Burkhoff because he looks at it in a very peculiar way in regards to the importance of the operations of the Holy Spirit from the old administration and then on to the new. And I won't get into too much of it, but look at it in terms of the general versus the special operations. For in the general, and if you have if you're taking notes online as well, in the Pentateuch, we know it about the creation of man. Further proof by the life breathed into him in the creation of the world. Genesis 2.7. Job, likewise, acknowledged this as well. Job 26.13 and Job 33.4. But the principle here is the same in all it is. And peculiar to God, it was him who caused the creatures to live. So much so, I quote Louis Burkhoff, or Dr. Burkhoff. And, and verbatim when he states this, the spirit dwelling in the creatures on which their very existence depends is from God and binds them to God. 
Other feats you might be wondering as you have seen with the dynamics of the speaking of the spirit of the Lord is in the exposition of how the power has been seen. For example, feats of strength, Samson in Judges 13 through 16, heightened intellectual capacities. You'll see this in Exodus 28 verse 3. Exodus 31, verse 3. Exodus 35, verse 30. To endowments, prestige, and appointment, especially with Joshua, Numbers 27, 18, Numbers 11, 17, 25, and 26. And yet, indeed, and it has been seen throughout the history of the church, it's been debated as to how the Spirit of the Lord fell on Saul and then was removed, it is not to be confused in the same concept of the Spirit and its anointment on David, of which in 1 Samuel 16, 13, and 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, that the Spirit resided in him and further moved in his life. And I note this because as you're seeing in the Old Testament, as the Holy Spirit, though there, was in a general operation, the beautiful part is that now the Messiah is going to convey the special operation onto which the Spirit is to undertake. But what's so, what's so interesting or compelling or makes this quite even eloquent in my own idea or understanding, is that John makes a note, he can't give the Spirit unless he's glorified. Unless he does the will of the Father. Hmm. It's amazing. Because in that same instance that I've given you, and we're going to see this, but here's a precursor. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to this, John 16, 5 through 11. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. In chapter 7, we're getting an early indication of what we're going to see in chapter 16. Granted, a little bit in between, but still. For our benefit, I'm reading this to you now just to show you the continuity. Now watch how it continues in chapter 16, though. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteous judgment. And concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. See the dynamic in the change. See, in the previous day, you just thought he was crazy, Todd, because he made himself co-equal with the Father, or equal with the Father. And in this indication here, 
he's showing himself to be bringing a helper. But all in all, it's still something of one complete thought. Of that eternal decree of what was to come. The Father draws you, the Son redeems, and the Spirit now must seal. This now allows us to segue, because now I gave you the two dynamics of the individuals. Certainly this is a prophet after hearing them speak. And then those who had that, their heart changed. Certainly this is the Christ. But then we have others that says, then surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? So as for the crowd, they lean on the teaching of the chief scribes, elders, and priests. For note how they interpret the scripture by verse 42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, you must be wondering, especially after I just related to you, that the Pharisees probably should have been, probably were using the Babylonian Talmud in terms of their um, keepsake interpretations, here's a little drawback as to what their theology and thought process as to where the Christ will come. And the people have it all right. By Matthew 22, 41 to 45, in this particular instance, while the Pharisees were gathering together, the Messiah asked them a question. By verse 42 in Matthew 22, he states, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. They answer properly. But it's interesting. How is it therefore that these individuals towards the end have not come to be changed? Because the last group of which they doubted Showed the spirit was never in them to even make the notion like the second group, this is the Christ. And you see that little crept of doubt. A little crept of doubt should be a key indication, even for us today, that when you don't believe the Messiah, that could be detriment to your own salvation. In fact, it could even be physical. Because now there's division. Hey, this guy's a good guy. He speaks well. No, this is actually the Christ. No, 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 no. The Christ cannot come from Galilee. Everybody's now run amongst in this commotion. So now the aches, even from yesterday, while it was yet but a whipper. Because remember, they didn't speak of him openly. Now there is ruckus. And what's interesting, those who had malice, indignation, and hatred in their heart sought his arrest and seizure. They probably even grabbed the officer and said, look what he's done. He's caused a commotion. Now you have the time to arrest him. But oh, just like the previous day by verse number 30, they couldn't lay hands on him because his hour had not yet come. So therefore... As the officers now, after now selling the crowd, <laughs> and they come back to the Sanhedrin. They come back empty-handed. And to this, most notably, as John will show with the Pharisees speaking, 
Why did you not bring him? The officer's responses were this. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Sounds like the first group, right? Surely this is truly the prophet. They didn't call him the Messiah. They didn't call him the Christ. They weren't changed. But the power of the gravitas that comes with the Lord Jesus Christ in his human humanity to speak can even make wicked men go their way. So, what is amazing about this? In which that as we're going to bring this to a close, the Pharisees are flummoxed. Because as turning to the officers, I also believe in when they state this in verses 47 to 49, they're also turning to the Sanhedrin. And now this, he states back to them after receiving their response, you have not also been led astray, have you? Look, no one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, no, 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 not the crowd from the previous day. This crowd who does not know the law is accursed. See the dynamics and the change between the two days? One group says, this is the Christ. What do you mean this is the Christ? What, what are you talking about? Have you not been under our teachings? Have we not searched the scriptures and his claim to you? How are you confused? A curse you go. We know when the Christ is supposed to come. We're the highest of the highest in terms of the Sanhedrin. Well, it's a little interesting nugget here because in verse 48, no one of the rulers of the Pharisees have believed in him. Has he? <laughs> Well then, a certain man by the name of Nicodemus is kind of come back here. And it's interesting that the dynamics of him being brought back in John's intention to write this under inspiration of the Spirit. Was it to show that Nicodemus then was one of the few Pharisees, if any one, who actually believed in the Messiah? I mean, from face value, is look by verse 50. He even knows to him, this is the same man who came to him by night and was one of the Pharisees who would do so. Was he changed that John now wants to convey him being here in chapter number seven towards the end? In fact, even note how he even states his question and posited back to the Pharisees by verse 51. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows that knows what he is doing now, does it? Gentlemen, we must be fair here. Now you can imagine the whole Sanhedrin, especially the one who's making the um, oration to the officers, looks back and probably grabs the whole group. Are you all of a sudden changed? I mean, <laughs> note what he says here. Because then, all of a sudden, he even tells them, he even tells him, 
Search the scriptures. See that no prophet has arised from Galilee. Unless you are also from Galilee. Nicodemus' hands are tied. See, the amazing thing about the way that John is conveying this is also showing the human dynamics of the human heart. And this can even apply today. We can hear the word being preached. We can be moved and tell every person we feel comfortable with, I'm a Christian. But then when it gets down and dirty and somebody contests your faith, you're going to be like, yeah, doubt arises. And what do you do? Do you reject and say you're not one? Do you run to disobedience and just roll with the crowd and the punches? It's interesting because, and even in Nicodemus' response, one might think he's defending the Messiah, but in reality, he's not. He didn't even name him by name. He didn't say this was an innocent man. He did nothing wrong. In fact, I can even tell you on the previous day of which as the crowd was making their notation or statement in their debate by verses 25 and 26 and questioning why the Pharisees did not have the officers retrieve him after exclaiming the, the, the comparison between the circumcision and Moses' law and making a man well, all, all inclusive on the Sabbath day. I believe Nicodemus heard that too. But yet he doesn't seek here to defend him. Why? Because he loves his rank. He loves his title of being a Pharisee. That's why he came at night. It's consistent. It's very consistent. Yes, Nicodemus may have wanted more information. For surely you're one of the wisest teachers we've had to come. Surely you must be a prophet of old that has been resurrected to come and save the Old Testament saints. But in reality, his conveyment shows he wasn't. It's interesting here. Calvin notes with the consistency from visiting him in the night to the question then he now poses in John 7. Nicodemus is not defending the Christ openly. He manifests excessive timidness. Thus the evangelist means that he has still a hankering after the concealment of the night. And it is not a true disciple of Christ. He says that once he came by Jesus by the night, but remains open amongst his enemies in order to stay in his own camp. Nicodemus, you had an opportunity to defend me amongst the Pharisees, you of all people. I taught you at the night. And yet here you had an opportunity to do that, and yet you don't do this. Now it's interesting too, because in posing him this question, and I mean the Pharisees, in terms of being from Galilee, they said, search the scriptures and see that no prophet arise from Galilee. Just for your notes, so that you understand, it is true. It was to transpire and to be fulfilled. If you have your pens and paper, uh, pens, you can make note. 
First, in the old Isaiah 9, verse 1, and with harmony to the new. Luke 1, 26, Matthew 3, 13, Matthew 4, Matthew 28, 16 through 19, just to name a few. So as I bring this to a close, the last verse states, then they all went home. And why can we make a note of this particular adage? Simply put, the Pharisees in their intent of what would have transpired in chapter 5 after seeking to kill him thought they had a crowd to do it the following year at this feast with two opportunities. And note, at the first day of the previous day, they couldn't get him. And on the second day, John is showing you they came back empty-handed. Much to their dismay. When Pastor Jason returns, you're going to now see in chapter 8, especially in the beginning, there's no more dynamics and debates with the people. Now it's with the Pharisees. And note, you're going to see that how the Messiah operates with those who were entitled to teach the proper doctrine and their disobedience, how he operates with those who does not. So don't just assume that those who stand on these pulpits are all across the world, that if you're not teaching proper doctrine, that the Messiah didn't also turn his back against you. And for us today to take on what we've understood in chapter 7, it should be an appoint to us that when we've seen the dynamics of the Messiah at work, all of it is with intent. All of it is for our faith. And our faith must grow. It can't stay stagnant. It can't be set in traditions. It cannot be assumptions because we read something or heard somebody say something. We must be true Berean Christians. And we must be ensured that whatever we hear, whatever we read, whatever we see is truly the word of God being spoken of. Shall we now let the Lord our God in prayer.